So let's go ahead and move on to our next question here, or our next word. What is your second Hebrew word? Since we kind of did a Hebrew and a Greek there, what's your second Hebrew word that every believer needs to know? So I'm actually calling another audible. Uh, originally, I talked about dwelling, and I think it's very important to understand that, but I think it's more of a... Um, more of an extra thing. It kind of gives you an image of sanctification, which is that process of becoming more and more like Jesus, right? Um, but I want to talk about the word um, kadash or holy, right? Uh, and I love this word. I, I can't believe I forgot it while I was getting ready for this. Uh, but this, this word holy, right? Uh, we use it all the time. And half the time, we have no idea what it means. Uh, but really, overall, it's an idea of being different from the rest of the world, right? And so the book that really uh, that really has this theme is Leviticus, uh, which you and I both know no one wants to read because it's super like ridiculous. It feels like you're reading the school rule book when you go to Bible college. Like, that's what it feels like. But... Uh, <laughs> And we get to say that because we went to Bible college and we know how much that was, how much of a pain yeah. in the butt that was. Those rule books. Those rule yes. books are insane there. Yeah. But Leviticus, when you read it at surface level, right, that's what it is. It's a rule book. It's do this, don't do this, make sure you do this, don't do this, right? But Leviticus as a whole has a different message. And I think it's really interesting. Uh, I'm actually going to be talking with my youth group about it at some point because they asked me to go through Leviticus with them. And I I made sure they knew what they were asking before I said we would do it. Um, but one of the, the rulings in Leviticus uh, is not to have tattoos. Jason and I both have tattoos, so you probably Straight know. Straight to hell, we're... man. Straight we to are. hell with both of us. But Leviticus has this underlying idea that's often missed, right? Uh, throughout the book, this phrase is repeated, be holy for I am holy, right? Be holy because I'm holy. And Peter repeats it in First Peter. But it's this idea that the Israelites were meant to be representatives of God where they were, right? They've First of all, in Leviticus, they get to the promised land later, but they have rules that they're supposed to follow before that. Those rules were concerning uh, all sorts of different things. Um, if you were bleeding menstrually or like you had a cut, you were considered unclean and you weren't able to be in the presence of God. Or participate in a lot of community activities. Like there's a lot of festivals throughout the year. There's this amazing festival calendar the Jews follow, uh, Orthodox, ancient Orthodox Jews anyways that you would not be able to participate fully in if you were unclean for whatever reason. Exactly. Uh, the book of Leviticus actually encompasses a picture of holiness that we, we don't fully understand when we read it, you know, as this rule book. When we read it as the guidelines to holiness, when we read it as God's warnings to the Israelites on how to worship, then we start to see what the purpose is right mm -hmm. and i think that's yeah. really interesting yeah absolutely and that's important little phrase in there easy to miss that martin said that is vital when you're trying to understand old testament concepts of holiness 
These are God's instructions to the Israelites about how to worship him. So some of those, some of those instructions, they're still going to apply today. But some of those instructions were very particular, like the tattoo commandment, right? To when these people were living and where they were living and what their experiences were. And so God gave them these rules that were never meant to be permanent that we are no longer beholden to. And Jesus himself gets rid of some of these rules, right? There's a note in the book of Mark where Jesus is having this um, back and forth with some religious teachers that are coming after him about uh, allowing his disciples to pick and eat stuff. And his response is that a man is made unclean by what comes out of his mouth and not what goes into it, which is expelled from the body. In other words, I can't, if I eat something unclean, it doesn't actually make my soul unclean because I'm, it just affects my physical body and then I'm going to poop it back out. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. And so he's actually repealing old, and Mark makes the point by saying this, Jesus made all foods clean. So he's actually pointing out where Jesus repeals this law of the Old Testament specifically and says, yeah, my followers don't have to do that anymore which is really interesting. God never intended for some of these Old Testament rules to last forever, but some of them, some of them do, because some of them are repeated in the New Testament. They're re-emphasized, like laws against adultery and against incest and those sorts of things get re-emphasized in the New Testament or even just assumed. Like there's some rules against certain types of sexual sin that are never explicitly repeated in the New Testament, but we know the early church didn't practice them and later church writers wrote against them. But when you look at biblical texts, then people like Paul just use the word porneia, which means any sort of sexual sin, and just assumes that his audience would know what he meant, all the things that fall into that category. Uh, so this holiness thing gets carried forward. It kind of changes. The rules change, but the idea of holiness never changes because God never changes. All right, so I got the last word here, which is going to be my first word, but obviously we've kind of moved things around in this episode a little bit. My final word is the word hypotasso, which means I submit. And not like submitting an assignment, but like I subject myself to, or I put myself under the authority of another person or thing specifically there's a usage and we're going to get into grammar a little bit here. So just like, hold on to your butts. We're going to make it through when you use it. And it's like normal, like dictionary form, the active voice. We don't have, we have voice in English, but we do it in a weird way. So you aren't aware that we have voice in English, the active voice of hypotasso, which is spelled exactly as I say, it means I submit to, and there's normally a connotation of someone forcing you to submit. Right. So this it gets used kind of in that sense in Luke 10, 17, where Jesus's followers are returning. A group of 70 of them are returning to him after a, basically a mission trip, essentially uh, 72 of them. And in, in verse 17, they say this or Luke says this. The 72 returned to Jesus with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Now, it's not saying that the demons wanted to listen to them. The implication is Jesus gave them authority and power by, by God himself, from God himself, to force these unclean spirits, these demons, 
to listen to his followers and they're coming back and they're like look they submit to us they don't want to but we could force them to by the power that you granted us but that is not normally the sense that submit is used in in the new testament normally it's in a different voice the middle or passive voice normally in the middle voice and the way that we would say something in the middle voice in in english would be to add a bunch of words and to say i do whatever the verb is to myself so if the verb is to feed right to feed something so i can feed my dogs that's active i feed my dogs that's active voice the middle voice is i feed myself i am doing the action and receiving the action now it's really really nerdy so let's like bring it back down to earth hippotasso i submit normally means someone is making me submit i submit to the government i submit to the police officer who pulled me over by actually like listening to the sirens and pulling over so i don't get in more trouble i submit to my wife because i don't want to sleep on the couch tonight you know like there's something that's kind of like coercing me into submitting but the way the verb is normally used in the new testament means i submit myself and now in english that sounds really weird you're like ah that doesn't make a difference like you're you're submitting yourself in the other cases too because someone's making you but the connotation the way that that sense or that that version of the verb is used in the new testament means to submit yourself willingly without anyone forcing you to and that's a lot of words in english it's one word in greek you just change the ending on the verb hypotasso to make it say that so this is a willing submission without anyone forcing you to and that's the way that, that verb shows up in verses like ephesians 5 21 and 22 where here Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then he goes on to explain what submission looks like for other people. But that word submit there is in the middle voice, which means that that phrase should be translated in English, willingly submit yourself without anyone having to force you to, to one another, out of reverence or out of fear for Christ. So in Christian ethics, in this perfect world that the writers of the New Testament are picturing, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, is when Christians interact with one another. Remember, verse 21 is written to all Christians. And then he reemphasizes, wives, submit to your husbands. Later on says, husbands, love your wives. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Children, obey your parents. Uh, masters, be kind to your slaves. Slaves, work hard for your masters. And so everyone is told what submission looks like depending on their role in the household. But everyone is called in verse 21 to submit without anyone forcing you to. In the case of the man of the household who is told to love, to agapao, to serve the best interests of his wife, no one can make him submit except for the government, but the government doesn't really care what they do in their own household. So no one's going to make him submit, but he's still told to submit. The wife normally would submit because she's scared of being beaten by her husband or even being divorced and cast out and not having any like anyone to provide for her. But Peter explicitly forbids beating your wife in first Peter chapter three, he says to live gently with your spouses as the weaker vessel, which is a very strange way of saying you shouldn't hit your wives because you can really hurt them. And that's not what Christians are about. So don't do that. So, well, how the heck are we supposed to make our wives listen to us? Because all the other Greeks and Romans, they beat their wives. That's how they do that. So what are we supposed to do? And Paul's answer is you don't, you don't do anything. You don't make them do it. They should just do it because they want to. So wives, you, wives, listen to your husbands, not because they're making you, but because you want to 
and husbands love your wives, not because anyone's making you, but because you want to. And parents obey your or, or, or parents be kind to your children. Don't exasperate your children. Children obey your parents. Whatever. Everyone's doing this simply because they want to as an act of free will. But this is all connected to our fear of Christ. That if we fear, if we are in awe, if we are in reverence to Christ, we will submit to others. We will submit to the government. We will submit to our church leaders. We will submit to our spouses. We will, in a very unique way, if you're a parent, you'll submit to your child by not being unnecessarily harsh to them. You'll still set rules because they're a kid and they need rules. But like you will submit to them and serve them by being a reasonable parent, right? By not exasperating them. So submission becomes this like core Christian ethic that everyone has to do, but it's always an act of the free will. No one forces you to. So what do you do if someone's in your church and they refuse to submit? Well, you can tell them they can't be a part of the community anymore, but you're not going to like blackmail them or threaten them or take them to court. In fact, the Bible explicitly teaches to not take other Christians to court. I think there might be an exception or two to that, but that's a different podcast or a different time. But, you know, if someone's just being rebellious in your church, what do you do? Well, you ask them to repent and then you bring two or three others and then you bring them before the elders. This is what like the ex explanation given in Matthew 18. You bring them before the elders, the leadership of the church. And if they still don't listen, you just say, look, you just can't be a part of our community anymore because you're causing problems. But you're not trying to force them to repent. You're not trying to force them to submit. It's still their choice. And that's like a really important Christian concept to grasp in all of your relationships. And there's one one last or yeah, one last thing that I really want to like highlight here. And that is that this is not an issue of power or value. Because when Paul says submit to one another in verse 21, he then goes on to explain how every member of a standard Roman household should submit to one another, including how more powerful people in each of these relationships, the husbands who have more power than the wives, just in the way that Roman families were structured, husbands parents who have more power than children and masters who have more power than slaves. Each of them are given specific instructions on how to submit to the person who has less power than them. So the husbands have to love their wives. They have to serve their best interests. The parents have to not exasperate the children. The masters have to treat their slaves well as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's not even a power thing. So I, as a pastor, am responsible for tons of thing in the things in the church. Uh, I'm a member of the elders. I'm one of six elders. But me and all the other elders, I as head of staff and an elder and all the other elders is basically like co-heads of the church. We still have to submit to people who sit in the pews who don't have any titles in our church. We still have to submit to it because it's not a power thing. It's just this is how you live as a Christian that should define everything you do is submission. So... Actually, there's one other thing that I want to, but I want to take a second. I want to give Martin, do you have anything that you want to add here or anything that you want to note? No, I just, I think that's a really great, um, I think that Paul used a really great illustration in the family structure in Ephesians five. Uh, and I think that, you know, submission is something that we, first of all, don't always fully understand because we don't use language like that. Um, usually, if I'm talking about submission, I'm a 13-year-old boy who was watching WWE, and they were in a submission hold, <laughs> and they tapped out. That's pretty much the context that we would use in English. That's, and so that's that first able... form, forcing someone into submission. Yeah, and so that's, I think it's just a great thing that, A, we should understand a little bit better, and B, uh, 
I think it's really great that the Christians had a different context to that. And it's a really yeah. good illustration of how we relate to God as well. Yeah. So the other thing that I want to note here is there are situations very clearly where you should not submit. So submission is a free act of the will, and you're meant to live in submission to everyone. And this is like explained different ways and pictured different ways. So basically the, the core of it being like, do not insist on your own rights, but rather like to treat others well, right? But there are certain situations where you should not submit. And that is where by submitting to a person or a group or whatever, submitting to a government or submitting to uh, a pastor or submitting to a friend, by submitting to that person, you will actually violate a greater commandment of God. So we see a great example of this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, where Paul confronts Peter. And specifically, he says, he calls him Cephas, and this that's just another name for Peter. So he says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood to be condemned. So, and then he goes on to explain that Peter was refusing to eat with Gentiles, basically thinking they were unclean. This is before the Council of Jerusalem that's mentioned in Acts chapter 15. So Peter is treating Gentiles like they're, they're less human or of less value than Jews. And Paul actually goes and confronts him and calls him out and says, shame on you. You shouldn't be behaving this way. And so we look at that and we go, that's not very submissive behavior. You know, you're, you're going and you're confronting this person and you're, you're going to make him feel bad. And it's like, yeah, because Paul has a choice here. I can submit to Peter by not calling him out and being like very gentle and kind and like not, not confronting him. So I can be submissive in that way. But if I do that, then I am betraying every Gentile believer in the church. I'm not standing up for the oppressed because in this situation, the Gentiles are an oppressed people by the way that Peter is acting. So I'm not standing up for the oppressed. And we know if we read the prophets, the entire nation of Israel is multiple times condemned for not treating the poor and the oppressed and the widowed and the orphan and all these like vulnerable people well. So if Paul submits to Peter, then he's going to end up mistreating thousands of others who have less power than Peter. So what does he do? He says, well, in this situation, I can't submit. I have to go confront Peter to his face. I have to call him out. I have to make him change his behavior because if I don't, I will be mistreating so many others. So there's a certain amount of wisdom we have to have. When do I submit and when do I not? And the answer is you submit at all times unless by submitting, you will violate a greater commandment of God. And often that means by submitting, you would end up mistreating someone else or, or uh, shirking your responsibilities to someone else. Martin, do you have any parting thoughts on anything that we've discussed today? No. Uh, the Really, the only thing that I want to say is Jason and I love biblical languages, and so we thought this would be really fun to do. Mm -hmm. But to be a Christian, you don't have to know biblical languages. You really just need to have a desire to love the Lord and to serve him. And so yeah. don't feel like we're saying you guys, you guys should know Hebrew and Greek. Like you guys should get on that. No, what we're saying is we've taken the time to understand these things and we want to share them with you so that you might have a nuanced idea of some of the ideas in your Bible. And so just continue serving, just continue loving. That's, that's your job. Yeah. I realistically like, if the pastors in your church have like formal education in understanding like ancient languages and ancient manuscripts and whatever, that's great. And that means that they've been given a very 
important gift. Uh, I don't even mean like like a, a gift in the sense of like a talent or a gift from God, but like the church community has given them the opportunity to become educated. And that's a wonderful gift. And they're going to use that hopefully to serve the church. But like you have been given gifts as well, whether they're talents or just opportunities. It's like your pastor is probably never going to have the influence in your workplace that you have, which is going to give you awesome opportunities to, to serve other people who may have widely varying opinions of Jesus and his church. That is a gift in the same way that the ability to understand Greek is a gift. And so uh, Paul uses this illustration frequently. The church is like a body. You know, some people are hands and some are feet and some are eyes and some are mouths and whatever. And every part of the body has a vital role to fulfill. So Greek and Hebrew is just a part of our place in the body. And it's not any better or worse than any other gift. And you're going to have, depending on your job and your family and your abilities and whatever, you're just going to have different gifts. Or some of the people listening to this may have the exact same opportunities and responsibilities that we have. That's fine. None of it is of greater or lesser value. It is all part of the body. And the important part is we all do our roles. And then the church gets along pretty well. I'm done preaching today, man. My throat hurts. What about you? I'm good. Awesome. Well, guys, thanks for joining us here today. Again, as always, if there's any subjects or questions that you want us to answer or address or whatever, then email us at realpockettheology at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook at Pocket Theology uh, and you can direct message us or post it on our wall or whatever. Uh, just be nice. We're we're fragile. So be nice to us, please. Uh, please leave a five star review. If you can, it would be super helpful. Uh, we are on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify, and we'll probably expand that list eventually. And uh, yeah, guys, thanks for being with us. And we'll see you back here next week.